2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to be his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, I thank you for this brilliant passage by your disciple, Peter. I pray that we as your disciples in Grants Pass in Josephine County. I pray that these words would echo and affect change in each of us so that we're not ineffective or unfruitful, but we flourish in what you've called us to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the big idea of this series is pretty simple. If you believe in Jesus, then what? What do you do next? What are we supposed to be about, right? And so what we did is we took some time to define what I call eschatological authenticity. It's a fancy word of just saying living what you're going to be. So we went from Genesis all the way to Revelation to show that our eschatological destiny is to rule and reign with Jesus for eternity. That's what we're called to do. I believe it's there in Genesis 1, gets fractured and ruined, and Jesus redeems it, recovers it, reboots it through this thing now called the church, the body of Christ. And that we grow into that like it says right here. And so last week I showed some engrams from Google where you can punch in any word you want and it tells you its usage in the English language over the past 200 years. And I did that just to simply show the vocabulary, how we talk about each other, how we talk about things is changing pretty radically. So you have right here in this chapter, this vocabulary that I want to recover. And I think it's really important for us as believers. What is faith? What is virtue? What is self-control? What are these terms? Because they're not being used anymore. And so we have to immerse ourselves in a better story, a better narrative. It's the Bible story of what we're to be. So that's really this series. So last week we did faith. And we looked at Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
and showed how they walked out their faith in a very difficult place at a very difficult time. And they thrived. In fact, they took over, in a lot of ways, Babylon. They become the closest people to the king of Babylon, right? So today we got a new word. It's the next word after faith. And in your translation, it might say something. Mine says virtue. The Greek there is erete. Erete has a couple definitions. The first one is this, moral excellence. And the second one says, seen through good works. That's erete, moral excellence demonstrated by how we actually live. It's erete. But I don't want to get into a Greek theological discussion on those terms. The big idea of this is not to go theological, but more go examples. So let's look at men and women who actually live these things out. So the example I have for Arete is this guy you should know really well because his story is amazing. He literally gets kinged. His name is Joseph. So would you turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 37, where we pick up Joseph and we see this moral excellence in what he does, how he lives it out, and where it comes from. It's a, it's a brilliant story. While you're turning there, if you're new to the story of Joseph, let me give you the background to him. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. There's still one to come. There's actually 12 sons. Could you imagine having 12 sons? Like, that's amazing. So he's the 11th son. And his dad, Jacob, who we also know as Israel, he's the father of the nation of Israel. His dad has Joseph as his favorite son. And back in that day, you let everybody know he's my favorite. So the way that Jacob let everybody else know, his 10 older brothers, let everybody know that Joseph was his favorite was he gave him a, a coat, a Gucci coat. And Joseph wore that coat all the time. It didn't matter if it was 104 out in the desert, Joseph was wearing the coat because it was a Gucci. So he was let, he's that guy, we all know that guy, like really, it's hot. So he's wearing this coat all the time and he has this other side to him. Not only is that kind of needling his older brothers because he's always wearing the coat, but he has this other side to him where he has these dreams. And in these dreams, they're real clear what they mean. They mean Joseph is going to rule over his 10 older brothers. And so he has these dreams and he's not very sensitive in how he shares them. He should really have just kept them to himself. He doesn't. So one night he has this dream where everyone makes these sheaves, these, these kind of bundles of wheat. And as they're making them, Joseph's, it stands straight up big and tall and beautiful. And then his 10 older brothers, they gather around his sheave and guess what their sheaves do? They bow down to his. So the next morning at breakfast, Joseph was like, man, I had this dream last night. Could you help me figure it out? I just don't know what it could possibly mean. What was your dream, Joseph? Well, there were these sheaves and mine was big and tall and beautiful and yours bowed down to mine. What do you think that means? Right? So his 10 older brothers are like, listen, Gucci punk, we are not bowing down to you. So you got a bunch of backstory to this guy 
And, and he kind of lives this way and does that. So finally, his dad, his brothers are out in this place called Dothan, and they're taking care, care of their sheep and they're doing their thing. And dad, Jacob, wants to know how they're doing. So he tells Joseph, hey, would you go out there and check on your brothers? So Joseph goes out there, and of course, he's wearing his Gucci coat, and he shows up to his brothers. Now, just think about that for a second. Isn't that just egging them on? Imagine, it'd be like this. Imagine some guy who's dressed up in his karate white robe thing and has the black belt on, and he goes into a bar. What's going to happen to him? Right? If it's in Grants Pass, every F-250 driving redneck is going to want to take him out. And I don't mean to dinner. It's like, dude, you just deserve that. You're, you're going to come in there like that? Okay, let's go. So Joseph's kind of like that. He's got the Gucci coat on. Look at me. I'm favorite son. And he goes rolling up to his 10 brothers. So guess what they do? They throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery. So that's where we pick up our story. Genesis chapter 37 and I'll just kind of read a couple of verses that recap what happens. Look down at verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt, skipping down to verse 36 for time. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now that's a tough situation. You go from being this pampered, privileged, favorite son of Jacob, who at this time in his life is very wealthy, if you know Jacob's story. So his dad is wealthy, he's got money, he is pampered, he's always been the favorite, he's probably never had to work a day in his life, he's lived like a king. Then all of a sudden, all that is taken away from him, he's now in a country where he does not know the language, he does not know the culture, and he's not pampered anymore, he is now a slave, and he doesn't know a soul. That's hard. I don't think we even have a category for what this would be like today. It'd be like the CEO of a successful business that goes bankrupt and he ends up working for an employee he once fired. It'd be kind of like that. It'd be like really tough and awkward. Like it's hard to even put your mind in like, what? wow. So now Joseph's gonna be tested. What is his metal? What's he made of? Aluminum or iron? right? Storms test us. They test our arete, our virtue. It reminds me of um, what I heard about World War II. In World War II, the U.S. sailors at Hawaii, wherever they're at in Hawaii, uh, they would get leave if there was a big storm coming in. And they could go out on the town, do whatever they're going to do. And then when it was good weather, they'd go out and sail and practice. The Japanese were the exact opposite. They would give their sailors leave when it was fair weather and they would go out and practice in the storm because they said the measure of a sailor is not in the fair weather. The measure of a sailor is how you do in a storm. I think that's probably right. And right here, Joseph is going to be tested. You're not favorite son anymore. You don't have your Gucci coat anymore. 
You don't have the instant in anymore. Now you're on latrine duty and cutting off the bunions on grandma's toes. How are you going to respond to that? How are you going to do? Well, let's pick up his story. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had to Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. How does he respond? I think really good. I think this is an example of 1 Corinthians 3.8 that says, some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. Joseph starts doing things, right? That's how his, his master starts seeing, hey, this dude's got some skill. God is with this guy. And so he gives him more. And there's an increase, and he gives him more, and there's an increase. And pretty soon, Joseph is top guy. I love that. He doesn't go down and throw a hissy fit. He doesn't go down and pout. He goes down there and says, okay, wouldn't have chosen this, but let's do it. Okay, this is hard, but all right. I think it's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.10. He says, whatever you find in your hand, do it with all your might. Joseph, this is what's in your hand. How are you going to respond? Or Paul puts it like this. Paul, author of half the New Testament. It's a bestseller. You should read it. He says this, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. That to me is the core of arete, right? I'll give you a more modern person. Thomas Edison said this. He says, opportunity is often missed because it's disguised in overalls and looks like work. <laughs> Joseph throws in here. He begins to work and God blesses him. It comes back. His erete is now beginning to grow, right? And this isn't easy. And whenever you're going to do that, we're going to see in Joseph, whenever you begin to say, I'm going to go for it, know this, you're going to be tested you will always be tested. So I can remember a time in my life and my wife and I were just talking about it where I, I felt more tested personally, maybe in core virtue, like, am I gonna do this excellent? Because it was something I had not chosen. So what happened, it was a couple of years ago, um, I have five kids of my own, which is full. And, you know, that's pretty busy. I don't have 12 boys, but I have five kids and that's busy. And then there was this thing that happened where these two foster kids, we were the only family members that could take them. And I felt like, my goodness, nine people in a three-bedroom home. I don't know about that. 
But it, it just felt like I was kind of forced into that. My wife was so much more gracious and, and better about those things. We were, it was like, okay, this is what we're doing. So um, uh, we, we were cracking up last week about it because day one, day one, they come to our house. My wife had made this awesome kind of spread build your own burrito thing. And so I'm going around and I'm making my burrito and I'm really happy about it. And, and I fold it all up, get it just like I want. And I set it down on the table and then I go to get a glass of water. And I go to get a glass of water. I fill up the glass of water. I look, turn around. The, the six-year-old girl had crawled up on the table and was eating my burrito like a dog. And I said, I guess you can have that one. I made that for you, right? And that was a bit shocking for me. And to be honest, I felt super overwhelmed by this. Like, are you kidding, God? Like, I, I feel like I give enough already. You, you want more from me? Really? And then I read this text. It's probably the most convicting time I've read the Bible. It's Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. And that little parable says this. It's Jesus says, imagine a servant who works all day out in the field. Like, he's just sweating it out all day in the field. From six in the morning till six at night. That's how long you work. You work 12-hour days back then. Comes in at six at night, walks into the house. He's dead beat. And the master's sitting at the table. What happens? Does the master say, bro, you look exhausted. Let me get you something to eat. Sit down. Let me prepare a meal for you. No. What does the master say? Hey, fix me something to eat. And what does a servant do? He goes, prepares food, fixes it, feeds the master, cleans up, then feeds himself. When I read that, God said this in my heart, Matt, do you want to serve me or do you want to be a servant? Do you want to serve me? Because when you say, I want to serve you, that means I still get to be in control. I'll serve you the way that I want to serve you. I'll give you my eight hours, but after the eight hours, it's my time. Back off, God. I'll volunteer here. I'll do that. But after I volunteer, God, I've got you off my back. You leave me alone with the rest of my time. That's serving. A servant is like Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, when your dog tired and the master says, hey, I got something else for you. You say, okay. And to me, it was so humbling because I've been pursuing Jesus for a long time. And to be honest with you, I don't want to be a servant. I just want to serve. But the metal of arete is built when you say, I'm not here to serve you. I am your servant, that you bought me with a price, that I belong to you, and I will glorify you with my body. And when your arete will be tested, and it happens right here to Joseph. And the test is this, Joseph, has your character changed? Or is it just your circumstances? Have you fundamentally changed who you were when you were a 17-year-old Gucci punk? Are you a different kind of person? Are you still deep down entitled, favorite son, pampered boy, or have you become something new and brilliant and different? Isn't that always the question that we have? Whatever we might struggle with, do we wonder, am I just doing well right now because the weather is fair, but the moment a storm comes, look out. I'll go back to the drugs or go back to the greed or go back to the anger or go back to the old me. Isn't that always a wonder? Am I a chameleon right now and I'm just looking good because the colors are right? Or have I fundamentally changed my character? 
So there is a test coming. There's a test coming for him. And here's what it is. Mrs. Potiphar takes a shining to Joseph. And so one day, Joseph's in cleaning the master bedroom. And Mrs. Potiphar sees Joseph in there. She comes in and she grabs a hold of him and says, come, lie with me. Oh, what a test that would be, wouldn't it? What kind of excuse could you come up with there? I'm the slave, man. I just got to do what she's telling me to do. Or, man, I've worked my tail off. I deserve a break. Oh, he could have had every excuse in the world. What does he do instead? He says, no, I will not sit against my God and I will not sit against my master. You cannot do this thing. And so she grabs a hold of him and pulls his coat off and he runs out of the room and she keeps that coat and she shows it to Mr. Potiphar and says, look, Joseph tried to rape me. I've got his coat. And Joseph says, I hate coats. Man, they get me in trouble. I am not wearing a coat again in my life. <laughs> Forget the coat, right? Brutal. He does the right thing. And guess what happens to him? He is thrown in prison. See, Arete does the right thing, not because of a reward. Arete does the right thing because it's right. Period. This is right. This is what I do. It does not matter how things come. It does not matter what happens afterwards. This is right, and it's what I will do. I was thinking about that when I read this, it, just an excerpt from this little book. It's called Missionary um, Reminence. It's called Remembering Missionaries. I'm going to make up the name. It's got by, a name, by a guy named Philip Henry Cornford. And he writes about this event that took place 200 years ago in Jamaica, where there are these slaves that begin to pray. And they just begin to pray because as a slave, you end up having to put your hope in something. So they just start to pray. Well, the masters of this plantation decide, we don't want them praying. Something's stirring in them. We don't like that. So they started to forbid them from praying, but they kept praying. Well, one day they call all the slaves in, and there on a pole is the head of one of the slaves. His name is David. And they call out to this one slave. His name is Moses Hall. They say, Moses Hall, come up here. Listen, we wanted to kill you, Moses. We couldn't find you, so we killed your buddy, David. And they asked Moses Hall, do you know who this is? Whose head is this? He said, yeah, it's David. Do you know why his head is here right now? Yeah, he prayed. Right. Let that be a lesson to you. And I'll read from you an excerpt from this book, starting with the murderers. Listen to what they say. Quote, Mind, from this time, let us have no more of your prayer meetings. For if we catch it, you at it, we shall serve you as we serve David. You better take warning, I, all of ye. Whoever we catch at such a thing again, it matters not who it is, we'll serve you all alike. Do you hear that, sir? Moses did hear it. Indeed, his whole soul quivered with excitement at every syllable. What could he do? To bow in calm submission was equal to a sacrifice of his principles and a denial of his Lord. So suddenly, raising and clasping his hands, 
he kneeled down upon the earth immediately beneath the martyr's head, saying in a solemn voice, let us pray. That's a rete. That's a rete. Every other slave bowed their knee as well, and they began to pray for the salvation of those murderers. And those murderers were so freaked out about it, they ran off. That's a rete. You do what's right, period. Not because it's easy, not because of reward, but simply because this is morally excellent and this is the way to read. So Joseph is tested. Will he succumb? He does not. As a reward, he is thrown in prison. What's he going to do now in prison? Is he going to fold? Is he going to pout? Is he going to throw a pity party? What's he going to do in prison? Well, let me read it for you. Look at verses 21 and 23. 21 through 23. But Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it to succeed. What's he doing in prison? The same thing he did in Potiphar's house. I'm going to work my tail off. And God blesses him and uses him greatly. My point is this. Erete, virtue, virtue is made up of not one big decision. Erete is made up of a bunch of little decisions that become the pattern of the way that you and I live. So I think sometimes we think erete is like buying a car, like it's a one-time purchase and I'm good. No way. You know what erete is like? It's like your wardrobe. It's like the clothes you wear, right? You accumulate clothes with many decisions over years, right? For some of us, it's decades. The 70s were the high style. Why move away from it, man? They still work, right? Wardrobe is just this accumulation of little decisions where we're buying something all the time and then it begins to define what we are and what we look like. That's a rete. It's not one big thing. It is these little decisions that then direct the big decisions when you're facing death for praying, will you pray? When you're facing prison for rape, when it's false, that's a rete. It's these little decisions that add up and build who you and who I am. Moses Hall had a practice daily of praying, and when it came down to facing death for it, his arete did not fail him. Yes, I'll still pray. That's a rete. Tax time is coming. Do we lie because we want to save money? Those little decisions are your arete. And I am all for keeping as much of your money as possible, legally and morally. But I will not prostitute myself for a dollar bill. I won't give up my arete because I know that's building who I am. The little decisions of what I'm going to be entertained by, the stories I will watch, things that I will listen to. Listen, th- there's stuff now on TV, I, it's soft porn, that's what it is. And people tell me, oh, but it's a great, great plot. I don't care, bro. I don't care, it's soft porn and it is objectifying women. Listen, those things are adding up in your brain to something. And when you're tempted, you're gonna fall. 
because your arete has been eroded. It's the thousands of little decisions that make the metal of what you and I are going to be, right? So to make up for time here, Pharaoh, he's in prison, rotting there, takes over the prison essentially. Pharaoh has these nightmares about some cows and about some corn. Personally, I don't find them all that, that, you know, I don't think they're that scary, but Pharaoh really did. And he wanted some answers. No one could answer. But then there was a guy who knew Joseph could interpret dreams because of Joseph's prison ministry. Joseph gets called out. He becomes vice Pharaoh, saves Egypt from this massive famine, saves his own family who's up north. They go through the same family. They end up all of them moving out of the promised land and they end up moving into Joseph's pyramid with him. Sounds strangely modern, doesn't it? Tough times and your whole family moves back with you. Oh, awesome. So they move in there. It's a bit awkward though, because these are the guys that wanted to kill me, right? So there's this awkward tension and this tension finally reaches its top, the the precipice. Like, what are we going to do when dad dies? So Jacob dies. The 10 brothers are like, oh no. He's been nice to us. He doesn't really have a rete. He's been nice to us because dad's been here. But now that dad is gone, it's revenge. So final passage, I'm gonna have to speed up a bit. Look at this, it's Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That's how the world works, right? You hurt me, I hurt you. They're just expecting the same thing. Vengeance, repaying, they're expecting that. But, verse 16, So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now bless and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept as they spoke to him interesting to me. This is probably at least 40 years, could be 60 years after these events. He's a grown man and he cries. I think it's really important to know and empathize with people that have been through very difficult things. Like PTSD is probably right and true. Like how could you see that much stuff and not have it change you? And this is for me, this is why I think that way. So I have this reoccurring nightmare. I've had it for 10 years just happened to me a couple months ago. It's I'm in a car, my older brother's driving, and we get an automobile accident. The last time though, my brain decided to just up at one level because the last time I'm in the car and my daughter, Carissa, she's only two years old, she's in the car with me and we're gonna hit a brick wall. Now, why do I have that dream? Because it happened to my brother. It didn't even happen to me, but it was enough trauma that my brain still for 10 years is like, how do we sort this thing out? Like Joseph here, is still suffering from what happened to him. We should have a lot more empathy than I think most of us have. Like people have been hurt really bad, betrayal, 
loss, slavery, false execution, false imprisonment, you know, just on and on and on. It's affecting him. He's crying. So here's what he does. This is brilliant. Here's the three ingredients that I think produces arete in us. Number one, he's honest. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? If you know Egypt, he was in the place of God. His position was a God-like position, but he's honest. And I personally believe it's like this. He's remembering himself when he's 17 years old with his Gucci coat on and telling the dreams over breakfast saying, you know, I could have done that a lot better. You know what? I was kind of a jerk. I was a Gucci punk, I'm sorry. I'm not godlike. I made mistakes. I say this all the time. Like, right now I think I'm doing really well. I'm 44 years old. I think, oh, okay, I'm doing really well. But I think back to myself 10 years ago when I was 34, I thought the same thing. Like, man, I'm doing really well right now. But now at 44, I look back at myself on 34 and I go, you were a Gucci punk. Right? Like, oh my goodness, you were a moron. And I think in five years, I'll look back at myself at 44 and be like, you moron. Right? Why? Because I'm growing and I'm changing and I know deep down, I'm not God. Man, I'm flawed. I think the base of moral excellence is coming to real honesty about ourselves. Like, hey, I'm a flawed person. I get it. You're a flawed person too. And sometimes our interactions aren't the best. We get that. Okay, good. He's really honest. He's actually honest about them. Look at the next verse. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's honest, but he's also hopeful. The word for evil there is ra. I love that word. Hebrew, ra. What's evil in Hebrew? Ra. It's like, I think my son Myron designed the Hebrew language. Ra. And the Hebrew word for good is tov. Beautiful word. Ra. Tov. He's really honest about his brothers. You guys meant evil towards me. I think it's okay to be honest with people. You know what? You were evil towards me. You meant evil towards me. You hurt me. That's perfectly legitimate. But he has this really hopeful perspective. He doesn't say, woe is me. Life is so terrible. Oh, you know, I'm a victim. Instead, his perspective is this. God will take all of your raw and he'll turn it into tov. God's going to take every evil thing you want to do to me and he's going to change it to good. All the abuse, all the pain, all the curses, all the betrayal, all the false imprisonment, the false accusations, all those things, all the forgottenness that I was forgotten in prison for years, all that, God's going to take all that and he's going to turn it into something good. And that's the reason Joseph would say, I can be a man of erete. I can do the right thing no matter what, no matter what. Why? Because I trust God. That is the rock bottom crucible for producing erete. I trust God. I trust God. You guys can't sink me. The Ishmaelites tried it. You tried it. Potiphar's wife tried it. Prison tried it. You can't sink me because God We'll take all your raw and turn it for good. That's the end of the book, by the way. 
That's where the lake of fire is. God takes all the raw of this world and he throws it in this place called the lake of fire. He gets rid of it. And then we go to this great place where there's none of that anymore. That's the end of the story. That's my hope. I'm hopeful no matter what evil happens, there's still beautiful tove that's coming. I love that. This still happens today. There are people that still walk this out just like this. I think about Rebecca Bender. If you don't know her story, unbelievable, right? Trafficked in Las Vegas. That her baby was used as the leverage to keep her in that. Freed after seven years by an FBI sting that set her free. She talks to her high school group a couple years ago and she said something I'll never forget. She shares that story and it's just brutal and you're crying and all that. And then one of the high schoolers raised their hand and they said this, they said, okay, Rebecca, what do you want to happen to your trafficker? Ooh, man, great question by a high schooler. What do you want to happen to your trafficker? Her answer, I pray and I pray daily that his soul would be saved. I'll tell you, I, I felt so puny and vindictive because the guy that just cut me off in traffic, I wanted him to go to prison. Like, where's the cop when you need one? That guy's a moron, put him in prison right? And she's like, oh, I want him saved. To me, that's erete. No, all the raw that you meant, God is able to turn it into something good. Do you have that perspective? It doesn't matter who your boss is then. I don't care if your boss is the Antichrist. He may be the Antichrist. I don't know, but it does not matter because you say, I'm not working for him. I'm working for my King Jesus and he can take all of your raw and he'll turn it into tove so I can be morally excellent and do great work right here, period. Your husband, maybe he's the Antichrist. I hope not. (laughs) It doesn't matter because God can take all the raw and turn it into tove. It is that attitude that is the crucible that created Joseph and his erete. That's it. And then lastly, here's how it works out. So do not fear, verse 21. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I think erete, if you want to measure it in your own life, it's by this one thing, your generosity. How generous are you, especially to the people that have hurt you? How generous are you? Are you a person that holds grudges and will not reconcile and holds things over people's heads? Because that's not a rete. A rete works itself out practically in how generous I am. Yeah, with finances, totally, but also with forgiveness. Do I forgive? Do I move on? Do I let things go? Because that's the core of arete. Because that's what God did for us, is it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is arete. I'm going to give myself so that all of the raw you've done to me can be poured out taken care of, forgiven, and you can become my king or my queen for eternity. That's a rete. So when you come to the table today, I would ask, am I like Joseph? 
Am I, am I humble, realizing I'm flawed? Am I hopeful? Do I have that God perspective that no matter what the raw is, he can turn to tove? Because it makes you bulletproof. And then lastly, am I more generous this year than I was last year? Am I more forgiving? Am I more reconciling? Am, am I more of those things? Because that is the proof of the pudding. And when I'm not, do you know what I do? I take communion and I say, Jesus, change me. You were so gracious and you were so compassionate and you were so forgiving. I pray that when I partake in your broken body right now, you would come into me and help me to be forgiving and help me to be generous and help me to be kind. Help me to be a Joseph. Help me to be like you. That's what I pray. And so, Father, I thank you for virtue. I thank you that it is a partnership. We desire it. We go for it. And then you stitch it into the very fabric of our lives. And so I ask forgiveness for myself where, Lord, I want to serve you, but I don't want to be your servant. Or I want your forgiveness, but I don't want to forgive. Or I want your grace and your mercy, but I don't extend those things to other people. Lord, I want to be a conduit of arete, moral excellence in what I do. I pray that for each of us. And so when we drink and when we eat, Lord, would you move us one step forward? May these little decisions today be building in us a wardrobe that's beautiful and virtuous. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.